Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, April 14th. We begin with an update from the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. We're speaking with Chamber President and CEO Sandeep Lally on how local businesses are coping now that we're one month into the restrictions caused by the pandemic. Next, we look at accessing day-to-day health care during the coronavirus crisis. We've seen a drastic increase in online doctor visits over the past several weeks. We'll talk to a doctor who says the practice of telemedicine may be here to stay. COVID-19 is changing businesses everywhere, but the truth is some businesses will get through the pandemic better than others. We'll find out more from U of A retail expert. Then we hear how one Calgary cab company is making changes to keep their customers and drivers safe during this time of crisis. Instability and stress, that can exacerbate insecurities and increase conflict for couples. So we've got some tips to help get you through this time from a professor of sociology. And finally, in an effort to prevent further spreading of COVID-19, many Calgarians have begun to source cloth face masks. We'll hear how two local organizations are teaming up to pitch in. Coming up on 8-12, it's been a month since multiple businesses in Calgary closed or drastically changed their ways of operating. This morning, we're checking in with Sandy Blally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber, to see how Calgary businesses are faring. Good morning, Sandy. Good morning. So we're a month in. What are you hearing from Calgary business owners? Well, you know, as you say, the month has really gone quickly. And so what's happening is that the shock of it was in the first bit. And now we're really hearing a lot about shifting their um, focus to how do they re-engage with the consumer? What's their new customer look like? What's the game plan for re-entry for their business? What are you um, anticipating or projecting over the next uh, few weeks or months for that matter? Yeah, so it's really a focus is for them, and we, we're encouraging patients, obviously, uh, over the next two months, at least until the end of June, for that slow uh, re-entry or potentially that's when we start. And what we're hearing from them is this is going to be long. Mm-hmm. This is going to be 2021, 2022. So we want to make sure that all levels of government and our landlords work with us as we re-enter. And speaking of, Calgary Chamber sent a letter to Minister Morneau with several asks for the upcoming budget in terms of short, medium and long-term action. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have to be focused on the long-term, the midterm and the long-term. And so the stability pieces are here. You know, granted, they're not enough or they weren't fast enough. You know, we'll still lobby on that. But we're asking for innovation to be at the heart of the federal budget for Alberta to be able to really look at the fulsome piece of our economy, our natural resources development and climate change, working with innovation. So we're asking for a natural resources innovation supercluster working in partnership with the Clean Resource Innovation Network, which helps us build our technology ecosystem here from startup to mid-sized companies to large companies. Because that's what we need is to really look at the fulsome piece of our economy in Calgary and say, what do, how are we going to go make market? And the other ask that we have in here is around increasing funding for the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So those are the public-private partnerships. And you can see, I mean, the government of Alberta announced um, some infrastructure spending. Those are the kinds of levers that governments can pull in a time when there's a down economy is to have infrastructure projects. So we're asking them to expand that as well. And then for that stability piece is looking at um, a strategy on our commercial rent. 
looking at making sure the Canadian financial institutions are ensuring long-term access to capital, because we keep hearing that. It's like, it's great that this goes till July or, or that BDC is this or the charters are this. What happens in 2022? Because I'm not going to all of a sudden have all my revenue back. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that the feds are working on the long-term. But really, the, the heart of this ask is to make sure that we get to a vision for our natural resources, all of our natural resources, and then really have innovation at the heart of it. So a natural resource innovation supercluster that enables greater learning across the country, but also really helps our innovation ecosystem grow here in Alberta. What about uh, civically? Do you think the city should use its $76 million slush fund to help cover business taxes? Yeah, you know, that's the that's the question that keeps coming mm-hmm. up. Is, yeah. It's great that you're deferring things, but what about the abatement? Like, And you know what? There are some uh, cities that are looking at doing that in other jurisdictions in the U.S. for sure that we're aware of. Um, here, we do need to see, like, they've deferred it till payment in October. But the business community, like I said, they're focused on reentry. So what does it mean in October when I can't pay my property tax bill? So now am I defunct because of that? Like, mm-hmm. how are you going to work with me? So that's, that fund is one thing, a phased tax program over the time period of two to three years, right? Because this is a long-term reentry. And that's what businesses are telling us. They're like, this isn't going to come back in October. So, Sandeep, are you constantly in conversation then with the mayor and council trying to look at different ways to, to help out the business community? Because I know that obviously that's their goal as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, they we are part of, from the get-go, so we're part of the Calgary Emergency Management Agency. Or we're part of SEMA, so we're there twice a day and all throughout. And then we're also part of the business task force that the city had spun up in that first week. So they've been at, they've been listening, they've been at it. It's just that we've got to get there faster to provide some certainty to these business owners to say, this is how the city is going to work with you through, you know, through 2020, but into 21 and 22. And yes, the council changes in 2021 potentially, um, but it doesn't mean you can't put in long-term policy. Thanks for joining us this morning, Sandeep. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Sandeep Lolly, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. Coronavirus has sped up Canada's adoption of telemedicine, and let's make that change permanent. That's an article from Indervir Mahal, a family physician and global journalism fellow from Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, and she joins us now. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for uh, spending time with us. Let's talk about this because, you know what, we're in this pandemic and uh, we are hearing that a lot of family physicians and specialists are doing telemedicine and uh, video chats. It seems like a no-brainer. Why has it taken so long for us to get up to speed with this? Well, you know, it's a bit of a complex topic, so there's there's multiple facets to that. Um, the biggest one so far has been that family physicians, specialists, especially those who work in the community, meaning they own their own practice, haven't had access to the right tools and technology to incorporate into their practice. The other big problem has been that um, you know, the, the fee codes haven't really caught up with telemedicine. So there are some provinces where you perhaps don't have access to virtual health uh, billing codes. Um, and there's other places where it pays far less. And then the other really important part, um, you know, I, I think that really underscores all of this, is that we don't have confidence in managing a lot of clinical cases 
over the phone or over video. And so when we go through medical school, everything is based off of seeing the patient in front of us, making a decision. Um, And if you don't have that opportunity to train with a telehealth environment, it can be hard to adopt your practice. So this is far more than just a simple telephone call, isn't it? It is. And so when we talk about telemedicine, it can be a broad range of options of how we interact with our patients. So it can be a phone call like you and I are doing right now. Um, It can be like something through Zoom. So a lot of companies have switched to Zoom meetings. So you get to see the patient in front of you through video conference. It can be a text message. It can be an email. We also talk a little bit about online triaging through artificial intelligence. So there's a broad spectrum of what telemedicine looks like. Dr. Mahal, we're focusing on Canada and uh, rightfully so during the pandemic as we've seen this change. But I'm wondering how we stack up, uh, you know, against other nations. Is there a different uh, uh, country in the world we can follow and emulate their model? Is, Is somebody doing it better already? Yeah, great question. So we know that the pickup of telemedicine in the United States, um, even in the UK, has far exceeded Canada. And I think there's a lot of, um, you know, compared to the United States, there's underlying insurance issues there. You have a bigger drive towards corporate medicine. And so, of course, driving technology is, of course, funding. And so I think there's a lot of really good things with our universal healthcare system that we want to maybe take some of those principles that they've adopted and then bring it here so that it's for everybody and not just from a for-profit perspective. Doctor, do you think this will be something that we will continue with going forward once we come out the other end of this pandemic? I really hope so, and I think we will. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, a big part was not being comfortable with the technology itself, both a physician and patient. Um, I bet you you're not used to going to your family physician and seeing them on a screen. And so there's adaption from both sides. And I think the more we get comfortable with the tools and the technology, and the more we get comfortable knowing what we can manage over telehealth, and what we shouldn't, um, and that's a really, really important part is patient safety, the better we'll get with the technology. I think the, the pandemic has sort of pushed us to get outside of our comfort zone and use these technologies. So let's go back and talk about those things that shouldn't, as you mentioned. I guess maybe from a patient perspective, you might be worried that you might not uh, get a diagnosis or have your problems solved, whatever it might be. This would just be a gateway or a starting point, wouldn't it? As a physician, you'd probably say to the patient, we're going to have to schedule a face-to-face. That is actually what a lot of clinics are doing right now, is that we start off with telemedicine and then if you know, you say you have new back pain that concerns me from the history, um, you're a pregnant person and you need a physical exam, then I definitely need to bring you into clinic and examine you and take a look at you. Um, and then I think there's also the other side of, of medicine that's definitely an art, um, and that is communicating with patients, you know, breaking bad news, talking about prognosis of perhaps things that are palliative. We want to have that face-to-face interaction when we can, Uh, because you can't quite replicate that through a screen. Who benefits most, do you think, doctor? Or is it win-win for everybody? I think it's win-win for everybody, as long as they're comfortable seeing their physician through telemedicine. Um, I've had a couple examples in my own practice where you have a young mom who says, this is fantastic, I don't have to round up the kids and get to clinic, we can do a quick medication refill. We even have some elderly who really appreciate not having to um, travel far distances to see their physician. 
And in those cases, telemedicine breaks down those barriers. And so there's really a win-win opportunity if we use the technology for the right patients in the right context. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Mahal. Thank you for having me again and stay safe. That is Dr. Indervir Mahal, Family Physician and Global Journalism Fellow, Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. I think that's one of those things that will turn out to be a good thing in the end, right? Did your wife, did she, was she trying to reach the doctor yesterday about one of your kids, Andy? Yeah, it's interesting how all this came together because yesterday we spoke, uh, of course, with Dr. J and I posed the question to him. Could we request that if we have an appointment or if we don't want to go to the doctor's office? Same time behind the scenes, uh, my wife had a question about our three-year-old uh, uh, girl, or our little daughter, B, mm-hmm. and uh, she did just that. She called and said, is it possible? And they said, absolutely. How is uh, 1030? I think it was 1030. And uh, she was a few minutes late, as doctors are sometimes because <laughs> they're busy. But she had a 10-minute slot. All of her questions answered, pointed in the right direction, and my wife said, this was the easiest thing ever. Let's face it, it saves everybody time, right? We don't have to go and sit in a, in a waiting room where potentially there are people sick with, you know, whatever, pandemic aside, but whatever. So it saves the, the, the patient, the client time. I would assume that it saves the doctor some time. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form. I don't know. You put together a whole list of, you know, when you have your, your telephone appointments. They're not going to take that much time. Generally, if you if you remember, they, you know, you go into the doctor, remember, like it was 25 years ago we've been to the doctor. <laughs> seems like it. You're sitting in that room, and in between, from what I gather and what I've seen, they kind of a lot of times pop into their office, finish up taking some notes. Exactly, They're yeah. just stationed at their desk with their computer open. They can put the notes in, whatever is applicable. And obviously, there are certain things, like, for example, if you had a, a rash you were concerned about and they were asked about it and you said it was cleared up, okay, all good. If it was still persisting, you know, perhaps you have to come in. But do you have to go in if you're you're feeling well, just, you know, kind of a, a follow-up? Perhaps not. Or just to get that okay to have a prescription, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I think this can save a lot of time and maybe even money down the road for our healthcare system. Totally agree with you. By the way, did you get that rash cleared up? I'm going to be okay. 710 on the morning news and a reminder after 9 o'clock, we'll be going live to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's press conference. He's had a couple of days off uh, for Easter. you got to give the guy a break because mm-hmm. it's been how many weeks that basically every single day at 9.15 he takes the podium. So some good news there. We'll have it for you after uh, 9 o'clock here on the morning news. It is 7.10 now and uh, COVID-19, boy, changing businesses everywhere, particularly here in Calgary, of course, close to home. But the truth is a lot of businesses will get through the pandemic better than others. Family-run firms, retailers with an online presence may be more likely to survive. We're going to get some details now from the University of Alberta retail expert, Kyle Murray. He joins us now. Hi, Kyle. Hi. Thanks so much for being part of the show. So talk to us about, you know, in your perspective, what kind of business fares better than others as we come out the other side of this pandemic? Well, it's going to be tough for a lot of businesses, but there's obviously some that are still doing fairly well. We see grocery stores, liquor stores. Um, cannabis retailers uh, have all seen a real spike in their business, so they'll probably be fine coming out the other side. Um, and then, then I think, you know, it, to a large extent, this has just been a financial stress test. Those who have more strength um, going into the, the pandemic um, are more likely to be strong coming out. There's not a lot you can do at this point, um, but those companies that had stronger balance sheets, uh, maybe a little bit more set aside, um, prior to, to the global collapse, um, those are the ones that are more likely to survive. Mm-hmm. So is it dependent at all on the size of these businesses? 
Yeah, I mean, large businesses tend to have deeper pockets and they have the ability to borrow um, in financial markets or even directly from banks more easily than smaller businesses. They have more assets, they have stronger balance sheets. Um, but we will see some large companies um, struggle and, and probably not survive as well. So it's not just going to hit small businesses, but it'll hit small businesses harder because they just don't have as deep of pockets. Kyle, do you think with all the government programs that are coming out, will that save some or is that really just a temporary fix? Uh, well, it it'll, it'll, will save some, um, but it, it really depends how long all of this lasts. Uh, I think the most recent numbers from the International Monetary Fund are, you know, a, a couple months ago we were predicting global economic growth of over 3%. And now we're predicting global economic decline of uh, 3% or more. It's why we're seeing governments start to talk in in almost panic tones, um, especially in the U.S., about getting the economy reopened because uh, the the decline has been very significant. As it goes longer, uh, you know, and and it might have to go a little longer than we initially expected to to keep it under control, uh, but as it goes longer, uh, that, that puts more pressure on everybody. So it's Um, it's really, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. And I think probably the thing that that is most difficult for businesses to deal with is they just really don't know when they'll be able to get back to work uh, on on a full scale and uh, with a strong economy. Kyle, we've seen online shopping grow exponentially over the past number of years in our nation. So I'm wondering uh, the importance uh, of uh, that aspect to a business, to a retailer, already having that set up ahead of the pandemic. Uh, How much more important is that to their success now compared to those who really didn't get online maybe to a, to a large extent? Sure, yeah. Once we start talking about online sales, I think probably uh, most of your listeners know, I know personally, you know, we're making more online orders. Um, I've coached family members and um, you know parents and other people through making online orders uh, as they start to make that transition. So we're seeing more of that. That's obviously good for established firms like Amazon. Um, but it's also good for firms that had or, or retailers that had some kind of online presence before this started. Again, once it starts, it's pretty it's difficult to ramp up quickly a, a strong e-commerce um, business. But if you had that up and running beforehand, um, then you probably have a better shot at, at making it work. And in a way, that's a shame for brick-and-mortar businesses who, you know, buy local, shop local. Those may disappear and or may just have to fully go online. I guess, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how it all pans out in the end. But we talked at the introduction about family businesses may be well or better positioned to come out of this in decent shape. Why so? Well, I think you see some family businesses and, and just some private businesses in general um, that will carry more cash, that'll have um, a little bit more of a reserve fund. They don't have the constant pressure from shareholders uh, or competitors in the same way to, to reinvest money in growing the business. They can often, what you see family businesses do is take a longer-term view. Uh, and that longer-term view in many cases means a little bit more uh, caution, a little bit more um, uh, conservative spending and uh, building up some reserves. And so for family firms that have done that, I think they're better off. The family firms that have been aggressive and growing, um, you know, they, they could be in the same kind of position as, as any other company. The major shopping malls, Kyle, uh, have been shuttered during this pandemic and already uh, were witness to a tough go over the past handful of years. One more blow to the established shopping centers, is this uh, going to be not exactly the nail in the coffin, but uh, uh, a sign of the further decline of the mall culture? 
Yeah, I, I think commercial real estate in general, but retail real estate like malls and other shopping centers um, have been under pressure, less so in Canada than in the United States because, um, you know, it, places like Alberta, um, we have weather that makes it nice to shop inside a lot of the year. So malls have a little bit better um, opportunity to compete that way. But yeah, shutting down for long periods of time, weeks or months on end, is um, going to have effects that are actually hard to predict. It's not really clear, even do I think in many cases, the, the real estate firms themselves, not knowing what the future looks like over the next few weeks and months, um, what it's going to look like when they reopen and when they reopen. And um, big malls especially might not be able to reopen for quite a while. We might see the smaller shopping areas open first because they just won't have the crowds of people. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, there's just a lot of uncertainty, and it's really not clear um, what the longer-term effects will be, other than obviously there's going to be some negative effects and there's going to be some pressure on those kinds of companies in the short term. It will be fascinating to see what happens when we do come out the other end. Thanks for joining us, Kyle. Yeah, it's my pleasure. That's Kyle Murray, University of Alberta retail expert. 819 Checker Cabs has started to install temporary plexiglass shields in their fleet to help support social distancing. Joining us with details is president of the Checker Transportation Group, Kurt Enders. Hi, Kurt. Hi, good morning. Hey, Kurt, your drivers must be pretty happy about this move. How many vehicles in the fleet will get this extra protection? So right now we've got approximately 150 cars on the road working. So every one of those vehicles will get one of those plastic shields uh, installed. So this extra level of protection, I think it's uh, probably not only great for the you know, customers, but I'm sure your drivers are happy about it as well. Well, I think it's good for everybody to try and help uh, with what's going on in, in the world uh, by putting this extra protection in for the drivers as well as our customers. And then with the drivers doing the extra cleaning after every trip, it just helps make people feel more comfortable when they do get into one of our cars. Let's talk about the cleaning in a sec, Kurt, but I'm curious as to why these um, plexiglass shields might be temporary. Wouldn't it be a great time to make them permanent for safety reasons for everybody? Um, over the years, there's been a lot of debate over putting safety shields in the vehicles. And now with the installation of uh, cameras, the assaults on drivers have dropped down dramatically. And most of the assaults that do happen, they happen outside the vehicle because mm. the driver goes out and chases the the customer for his fare or gotcha. whatnot. So the the cameras have really done what they're supposed to be doing. It's got to be costly to put these barriers into place. And I'm wondering... Uh, where is it going to be covered? Is, is it going to be passed on to the customer? No, we're, we're eating uh, the cost of the uh, install and the shields for our drivers and for the customers. We just want to, you know, it's tough times for everybody out there, and we didn't feel it's appropriate for the uh, drivers or customers to have to pay an increase to try and provide an extra level of, um, you know, just safety for everybody. Kurt, talk to us a little bit about those cleaning protocols you have in your vehicles. How does that all work day to day? So, you know, all the drivers are instructed that once they get out of um, a customer leaves, they've got Lysol wipes or some sort of type of a disinfectant. Just to wipe down the door handles, give the seats a quick wipe down, uh, anywhere where the customer could have touched, um, as well as now they're going to have to make ensure that the shield is also uh, being wiped down on a regular basis as well. Kurt, how has business been? Because I understand, you know, many people working from home who may have used a checker cab, for example, to get to work. Um, has it been a, a huge impact or are you seeing things fairly steady? Um, it's been a huge impact. We're probably down, we normally do about 10,000 trips a day and we're down to about, you know, two to 2,500 trips per day. Wow. Uh, so it's keeping our drivers that are on the road fairly busy and, uh, and for the ones that are working out there today.
Well, we know you're out there and we appreciate all that you and your team does. Thanks for joining us, Kurt. Thank you. Have a great day. That's Kurt Enders. He is the president of the Checker Transportation Group. Uh, you know, 25, uh, 2,000 to 2,500 down from 10,000 trips. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you just think of there's, uh, it's, the impact has been so big across the board and even things that you don't really think about until, yeah, of course, if cab trips are down, people aren't going anywhere. And the adapting, one yeah. more business. It's going to look different the next time you hop into a cab. And to your point, Sue, I'm not sure how long the shields would be in place. We're hearing nobody has a time frame on when we'll be on the other side of the pandemic. So chances are, even if you're moving into late summer and fall, uh, and again, as we spoke earlier with Danielle, will it be eradicated? Not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. The shields will be up. So not just different than the you know, pharmacy or the grocery store with the shields. Taxi cabs having to adapt and uh, good stuff that they're still keeping the drivers on the road. I just want to give a, a quick reminder that uh, we will at 9.15 go to the Prime Minister who will speak live to the nation once again this morning. And before that, we'll get some tips for couples if you're listening and you're stuck at home 24-7 with your beloved, your significant other, <laughs> and it might be a little bit of a conflict. Uh, we've got some tips and some help for you coming up just after 9. now, and in an effort to prevent further spreading of COVID-19, a lot of Calgarians have started to source cloth face masks. Dress for Success Calgary and Fishman's Personal Care Cleaners have partnered up with Mask Makers YYC to produce some of those home-sewn, non-medical-grade masks and scrub caps for those in need. And joining us is one of the Mask Makers YYC volunteers, Patricia Flock-Anderson. Hi, Patricia. Hi. Hey, thanks for joining us. How did you get involved with Mask Makers YYC? Um, Well, about three, almost three weeks ago exactly, so March 23rd, uh, there was a kind of a group of us that just found each other, uh, responding to uh, some of the things we were seeing going on around the world uh, with respect to cloth masks and this being a way to potentially protect even just individuals uh, against touching their face or this sort of thing when they're out in public. So we found ourselves, um, one, of our, one of our team members uh, started a, a Facebook group, and that's how we found each other, uh, kind of created the leadership team that we are today. Uh, we started even day one uh, with already over 200 people in the group. Wow. Incredible numbers. That's, that's a, a quick leap when you really think about it. Who can access these masks? Uh, the masks are our main focus are to provide masks for essential workers. Uh, so even though AHS is not approving cloth masks at this time for use in their facilities, uh, there are other people working in uh, places with vulnerable populations. So that might be with the elderly, the homeless, uh, private care facilities, group homes, uh, some of the city essential workers. Uh, so those are kind of our main focus is to try and get masks to the people that are needing them in their in their jobs to stay safe. How many do you think, how many masks do you think that your group has, has made so far? Do you know? Well, I can tell you that as of yesterday, we had already distributed over 3,200 masks. Wow. Incredible. And uh, is there a charge involved? No. So the masks are not, so our group is a grassroots group. Uh, everybody that's contributing their efforts is doing so on a volunteer basis. So whether they be the people that are sewing, whether they be uh, the people that are donating supplies so far, up until now, most of the masks that we've distributed have come from fabric that people had at their houses. Uh, Now we've started to get fabric donations coming in and and we're going to start to see more masks get produced because of those donations. Um, But a lot of the people just said, yeah, I can sew. I've got fabric at home. 
give me a pattern. Let me get started. And so everybody's volunteer. Uh, our masks are free. Uh, obviously, we have had to put a, a limit on how many masks uh, we can distribute uh, to people and to groups um, for that very reason, but uh, they are free. Incredible stuff. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Keep doing what you do. Thank you very much. That is Patricia Flock-Anderson from Mask Makers YYC. It's a great initiative. Love that they're doing that. And, and I understand that they're also making caps and gowns for some of the frontline yeah. workers too. And I think that you can, there are Facebook groups for the Mask Makers YYC and you can uh, donate. If you do have any material, you can get in touch with them and you can donate the fabric to them because they're always looking for more, obviously, as they continue to make them. More than 3,000 masks they've made so far. That's awesome. Since March 23rd, you yep. do the math there. It's, the, uh, four, it's 22 days ago. Incredible yep. stuff. It's good stuff. It's a great grassroots. Love it when people come together. I wish I had the skill to uh, whip up a, a mask or two or to sew anything. I can't even put a darn a hole in my sock. So uh, <laughs> respect for those groups that are doing that. And again, if you go on Facebook, it's Mask Makers YYC. It's 9-10. A lot of us, well, several weeks into stay-at-home lifestyles thanks to COVID-19. There are reports of divorce rates skyrocketing in China since the outbreak. Our next guest offers five practical, evidence-based tips for couples when being stuck at home is making you feel like you're stuck in your relationship. Joining us this morning, Assistant Professor, Faculty of Social Work at the University of Regina, Kara Fletcher. Hi, Kara. Hi, how are you doing? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it can be difficult, can't it? I mean, you, you love your significant other, but being stuck together 24-7 uh, sometimes can change things, can't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. So you've got some tips for us. Yes, I do. Yeah. So I guess uh, what I started thinking about was um, my clients and, and friends were saying, oh my gosh, there's either going to be corona babies or, or corona divorce. <laughs> yep. So. I wanted to come up with some ideas to kind of respond to that. So I, I thought the first thing that's important is that everyone needs to kind of take some space. So whether that's hiding out in your bathroom, as one of my colleagues says she does from her kids and her, and, and her husband, or it's, you know, going for a walk, getting away, making sure that you're getting some alone time, because this is pretty unusual that you wouldn't have any. Um, the other thing that I, that I was thinking about was how important it is to, when we're having conflict, address things from a, a point of, I, as I'm upset, I'm feeling defeated, I'm feeling stuck, I'm having a hard time. When we do that, people don't feel so attacked. Our spouses don't go, oh, you always are nagging at me. You always think I'm doing the wrong thing. And uh, the third thing I was thinking about was, you know, when, when we get into these arguments, because I think when we're in this small space together, we're, we're often having conflict because we're feeling stressed, we're feeling like things are uncertain. So can we, once we get into that conflict, take a step back and say, Let's press pause. Let's step away and see if we can maybe come back to this at a later time and uh, respond to things when we're feeling a little bit more calm. Maybe mm -hmm. we had something to eat. Uh, so encouraging people to let's let's press pause like you would on 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 the television. Let's let's take a break. But Kara, in the heat of battle, it uh, might be easier said than done to press uh, pause. So at what point uh, is there a technique we can use to keep that in mind? Because generally, uh, you know, when you're uh, pulled into the arena to, to get into an argument, it's hard to get out. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think sometimes the best thing to do is to have a conversation, especially if you've noticed you're getting into conflict a lot with your partner, have a conversation where you say, okay, so if we get into this again, uh, do you think we could agree that if one of us presses pause, the other person respects that? 
And so kind of noticing in yourself, okay, is my heart beating fast or am I getting kind of sweaty and angry? Um, am I saying, starting to say things that I'm going to regret? And, and using that moment to press pause and agreeing with each other, we can both press pause and we're going to respect that. But it's always best to have those kind of conversations, certainly when you're calm and when you're not actually in the heat of an argument together. I, I love um, my kids in their ball league. They they are told to practice the 24-hour rule so that you, you go back to something 24 hours later. You don't deal with it right at that particular time. And that might not be a bad plan for us at home today, too. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. How about acknowledging your strengths, your weaknesses, and just the fact that this is different for all of us? And I think everybody's having a bit of a different time with it. You know, difficult time for sure. Yeah, well, so I think one of the things we can do that can be helpful is is try to listen or look for the things that your partner is doing well. So we often, I think, focus on the negative, especially when we're stressed, we kind of get tunnel vision and all we can see is the things that are going wrong. But if you notice, you know, your your partner is, is pitching in and, and, you know, helping with figuring out the homeschooling schedule if while you're working or, you know, trying to keep things quiet while you're on a Zoom call, acknowledge that, say it out loud. I appreciate you. I appreciate what you're doing. I noticed that you're you're particularly good at handling this or that at this stressful time because certainly, you know, we're all in a different situation. Some people are out of work. Lots of people are out of work. Um, some people are trying to juggle working from home with a home full of kids. You know, everyone's, everyone's stressed. So just acknowledging those, those strong po- points, I think, is particularly helpful. You mentioned the strengths and maybe it's an opportunity to uh, do a task at home that maybe you didn't. So, for example, if I normally do the laundry and uh, she's normally cooking dinner, maybe we switch those roles up. Exactly. Absolutely. That's a great idea. To change things up a bit. Uh, Sounds (laughs) great. Any other uh, last minute Hail Marys you can do uh, to tell us that could uh, help us get through these times? Well, the, the last one that I, that I would recommend is just trying to be a bit reflective in terms of what's your part in an argument. So we, we tend to have patterns in, in arguments where we take a particular role. So just checking in. Am I the person kind of nagging or, or pursuing my, my partner because I'm feeling anxious and upset? Or, or do I tend to shut down and, and try to avoid conflict? And just being a bit curious about your own role once you're curious about it, you can actually do something about it. Great tips. Great reminders. Thanks for joining us, Kara. My pleasure. Take care. You too. That's Kara Fletcher, Assistant Prof, Faculty of Social Work at the University of Regina.